I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Faith and Fear. When I was in India, Ramdas had this saying that he came up with, faith, comma, no fear. Fear, comma, no faith. If you've got faith, there's no fear. If you've got fear, there's no faith. And in fact, my guru said, if you trust in God, you don't have fear. And beyond that, there's a fellow named Jerry Jampolsky who founded something called the Center for Attitudinal Healing a long time ago here in Northern California that then spread across the country and offered originally support groups for children who had cancer, but then opened it up to all people with cancer and caregivers and grieving people and had some really wonderful groups going. He wrote a famous book called Love is Letting Go of Fear. So all of these people, Ramdas, Jerry Jampolsky, Maharaji, are saying, if you have love and faith and you don't have fear, and if you have fear, then love and faith aren't really going to be present at that point. At the same time, I've been very frustrated, particularly when I first heard that, that title, Love is Letting Go of Fear. It, it kind of bothered me because it seemed like all I have to do is let go of fear and then I'll, I'll feel love. But it's not quite that easy. I mean, going into the heart is 
really very difficult if we're not trusting the environment to be supportive. And what we just did in the guided meditation, for those of you who are here for that meditation, is we spent some time getting grounded and getting into the lower part of the body before we went into the heart. And this dropping down, this this trusting, this faith that we can drop down into our bodies, in my experience as a recovering intellectual, is really crucial for being able to eventually open the heart and feel all this this love. What is it that we have faith in? Some people that are listening to this probably are people that have faith in a particular deity or a form of God or in some Buddhist deity or Hindu deity. Other people maybe don't have such a devotional streak and there's faith in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The fact that freedom exists, that there is a way to this freedom, and there is a community of seekers now and around the world, going back into time, who have practiced the Dharma and are supporting our practice in this moment. When is fear going to be stronger than faith? When is faith going to be stronger than fear? Fear is usually thought of as residing in the unconscious part of the psyche. It's way deep down in there. It's down deeper than the shadow material of sadness and anger and narcissism and things like that. It's a great idea. Can we have compassion for our fear? Where is it we shrink from being fully alive? But at the same time, for many of us, there is a a background level of anxiety that is basic, that we're, we're, it's so present that we often are not even noticing it. It could even be called grief. There's this, just this background level of, uh, feeling things aren't quite right. I was talking to a guy a couple of days ago who said that when he wakes up, even before he knows who he is, he has a sense that something is wrong, that something is wrong about life right? That there isn't just this relaxing into, okay, it's totally safe just to be present. We can particularly see this sense of anxiety in the wandering mind when we're meditating. How wonderful it is when we're meditating and the mind is spacious, there's not a lot of thoughts, there's a feeling that can even move into blissfulness. But so often, we feel just a moment of that spaciousness and then the wandering mind jumps in as a way of reifying the ego structure so that you're not having to deal with that spaciousness because in that spaciousness, our anxiety is going to be revealed. Can we fully accept the human condition and accept the groundless nature of our existence? So there's this conflict, this tension going on between the fixated stance of the ego structure on one hand and the open non-fixated stance of our true nature. In a way, that tension is at the core of spiritual practice. Can we learn to distinguish between fear and anxiety on one hand and uncertainty on the other hand? Can we be grounded in the face of impermanence? A little child who's just been born for the first two years of her life, even before the first two years, the second and third trimester is learning to be grounded, to trust 
that it's safe to be present, that one can trust this groundedness, one can trust the mother with a capital M. And unless your mother with a small m was enlightened, it is very hard to trust that we are supported all the time. And even if you have a wonderful mother, just being in a body, accidents happen. And there are times when your mother has her own needs where you might feel abandoned and she's just living her life for uh, a time when she's not paying full attention to you. This, this quality of learning to trust the mother. In fact, Maharaji would say that you really can't come to God until you learn to love and to trust the mother. The mother is, at least in Hinduism, the mother is all form, energy, matter, and thought. Anything that can be experienced is the mother. Can we keep having this, this trusting relationship with the mother that even when the mother is bringing us something difficult, that that difficulty is her blessing. It's showing us where we can open more. I work, as you know, with people who have life-threatening illnesses. And sometimes there is this unfolding where somebody is resisting the disease, is mad about it, is afraid of it, is pushing it away. And then at some point, often when somebody is relatively close to death, the person begins to realize that even this is a gift. Even this is something that I can open to. Do we have to wait until we're almost dead before we begin to trust that the mother comes in all these different forms? Carl Jung said, the psychological rule is that when an inner situation is not made conscious, it happens outside as fate. When an inner situation is not made conscious, it happens outside as fate. And he also said, the shadow becomes hostile only when it is ignored. Kind of the same thing in different words. So that the shadow, all, the, all this difficult material that comes up, if we're really paying attention to our feelings moment to moment, uh, then we don't have to have necessarily such a difficult relationship with experience down, down the line. The Tibetan word for meditation literally means familiarity. Can we be familiar with these inner situations? Can we make them conscious so they don't have to have, have to happen outside as fate to have this like stronger message because you're not paying attention to the uh, more subtle one that happens first? Ernest Becker, who won the Pulitzer Prize for writing The Denial of Death, it was a, a book about psychoanalytic theory, has another wonderful quote. He says, The irony of the human condition is that our deepest need is to be free of the anxiety of death and annihilation, but it is life itself which awakens it, and so we shrink from being fully alive. Let me read that again. The irony of the human condition is that the deepest need is to be free of the anxiety of death and of annihilation. But it is life itself which awakens this anxiety, and so we shrink from being fully alive. To be fully alive, we have to learn to have the faith to be with anxiety, to be with fear. Can we learn to be open and accept 
the alternation of pleasure and pain. In Buddhism, it said that ego equals fear plus hope. And we have to first learn hopelessness, letting go of the hope that fear and anxiety aren't going to be here. They are. Can we be with them? And then fearlessness will happen secondarily. Until we have an intimate relationship with death, our practice will not deepen. One can meditate, one can develop more concentration, but until you really know in your bones that you're going to die, it is very difficult for the deep fruits of practice to fully bloom, to fully ripen. So we've talked some about this pervasive anxiety, but in a way all fear is rooted in fear of death. And fear of death is exactly the place where you or I are not enlightened. This coming to terms with, being able to touch in a very intimate, compassionate, clear way, these places where we're afraid is at the core of spiritual practice. Having compassion for our fear, for our scared places, for the fear of people around us, is what makes life and practice workable and bearable. Compassion won't necessarily make the fear go away immediately, but it makes it workable. It's instead of just touching it and pulling back, being able to touch uh, fear with compassion allows us to slowly dissolve it. There have been some recent studies done that have shown, studies done at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, that show that if you're mindful of stress, that stress doesn't affect you in the same negative way, like creating inflammation in the body, for instance, stress uh, that you're not mindful of causes. It's not really the stress that harms the body. It's not being mindful of the stress, having unconscious stress. If you're aware you're in a stressful situation, you're feeling it in your body, you're grounded, you're able to be there, you're trusting the mother, you're having faith that this is workable, then stress won't be affecting you in the same way. To me, this brings up a couple of questions. The, the, the main question is, how deep is my faith? I notice if I really ask myself, how come I'm not more loving? How come I, I know that love works? But then again and again, love stops. I always come back to the place where I don't have enough faith, that the faith is actually only goes down to a certain depth in me, if you will. And I've, I've helped so many people die. And Initially, I was kind of surprised that some of the people that seemed to have all the answers, one woman I'm thinking of had been a meditation teacher for 30 years. And I thought, boy, she's going to, it's going to be great to watch her die. She's going to do it with such openness and, and it'll be magnificent. And she was really afraid at the end because her faith only came down to a certain level. It didn't, it didn't go into the marrow of her bones. It didn't go down into the root chakra. And other people who didn't seem like they were particularly strong practitioners, 
but it had had a much deeper relationship with nature and watching the changing seasons and things like that had a much easier time dying because they had a faith that wasn't intellectual. It was a, it was a faith based in life experience. So I keep trying to be alert to the place where my faith stops. For me, it's faith in Maharaji, faith in Christ, faith in Hanuman. To me, they're all really the same. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other. But also there's faith in the Dharma, that I, I have this direct experience that the more mindful I am, the more compassionate I am, that I feel this movement toward wholeness. Let me now open this up to discussion. Yes, Dale, hi. I'm starting with the issue with the mother. Uh, it was very encouraging to hear you say the mother is not just a person. <laughs> You're right. As somebody that had a very narcissistic mother, and there's this, this feeling of loss uh, because of that. It's interesting to see, you know, to see you or to hear you say that that kind of stuff. When you talk about about the anxiety and dealing with anxiety via compassion, that's actually very reassuring. Because what I what I tend to do with myself is, you know, when the anxiety comes up, it's sort of like, bam, Jim. You know, you've done all these years of meditating, all these years of work. How can the hell can you still be having anxiety? So having compassion for that person that's still having the anxiety despite not wanting to have it is actually quite reassuring. Some of the people I know who have had the deepest realizations are people who have had very difficult childhoods and had to struggle mightily. There are people that have had really very healthy childhoods and they don't have a lot of motivation for practice. So even before grounding, in my healing paradigm, even before the very first step of becoming embodied and having trust and becoming mindful, is having motivation. Even though I had a very loving mother, I had some very difficult traumas early in my life that were not really her fault. One friend of mine, acquaintance actually, to be honest, said, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. <laughs> So, a lot of this stuff can be uh, traced back to what we think of as the mother, but there's another cliche, which is that it's not too late to have a healthy childhood. Even if you had a mother who had uh, so many issues herself that she had a hard time being present for you, to the extent that you now can begin to bring awareness and compassion to how that is manifesting, how that is still living in your body, is completely within the realm of healing. And what we've been doing in these groups is investigating this developmental healing practice of getting grounded, getting centered, being embodied as a support to being mindful, then opening the heart, compassion, devotion, gratitude, loving-kindness, and then going into this tantric stage of empowerment and realizing that even the difficult stuff is another phase of the deity, finally into wholeness and non-duality. But one could even start at the other end of going directly into wholeness. We, we, we did a meditation. Were you here for the meditation? No, I was late. Okay, so... We could do this together again without the whole prelude. But 
just do this this quick meditation where one just relaxes on the in-breath, just resting on the in-breath. And as you breathe out, imagine that there are ever-expanding spheres of awareness going on in all directions infinitely. And then the next in-breath, you just relax. And as you breathe out, you just breathe out either feeling or seeing or imagining this expanding energy. And then pay particular attention to what happens at the very end of the outbreath. At the very end of the outbreath, it's almost like a question arises. What's going on here? Who's meditating? What's reality? So at the end of even letting go into spaciousness, is there anybody meditating? Are you other than spaciousness? Are you different from me if we're both doing this or even if we're both not doing this? In the past, I have talked about a two-breath meditation, which is a little more complicated, but you may remember that the two-breath meditation is up, down, in, out. The first breath is up, down, and by that I mean in the first in-breath, you just imagine that God is straightening out your spine, kind of pulling from the top of your head. You're, you're getting motivated. And down, on the first out-breath, you drop down into your belly. And in the second in-breath, you breathe into your heart. And in the second out-breath, you breathe out into vast spaciousness, which is kind of what we were doing here. We're doing the just the second breath without getting motivated and, and embodied first. Breathing into the heart and breathing out in all directions, above, below, right, left, front, back. And then paying particular attention to what happens at the end of the letting go. And in a way, our fear of death will be there if there is some in that moment, because in a way there's nobody there. And to the extent that you have these issues about uh, not being grounded because your mother wasn't there for you, that will appear at that point. That will appear in this letting go into spaciousness. So it's a very direct practice, and I think it would be balanced by doing some of the grounding and centering things that we've been talking about beforehand, or at least in conjunction with. I remember the first time in my life that I was able to be awake during feeling afraid. I had been practicing some. I had been learning to be present for anger and for sadness and for agitation, a shadow level of the mind. And I was uh, I was just walking to the mailbox. I was visiting my parents. In those days, there was no delivery at the front door. There was a mailbox across the street on a post. It was a summer day. It was a beautiful day in California. It was a perfect California summer afternoon. I was walking across the street, and I was concerned about what was going to be in the mailbox. I think it was some of my grades from uh, graduate school or something like that, right? And I was I was feeling so good from the beauty of the day, and I was at the same time I was feeling anxiety about what might be in the mailbox. And all of a sudden, I could feel fear in my body. Usually, fear is projected. We're not aware of our fear. We're aware of what we're afraid of. 
I'm afraid of what's going to happen financially because of this or that. I'm afraid of that person who's not being kind to me. I'm afraid that I might be embarrassed if I'm speaking in public, something like that. The Tibetans have this slogan, drive all blames into oneself, which means that as long as I'm blaming the environment for how I'm feeling, healing isn't going to be happening. Can we withdraw the blame and feel the emotion directly in our body? What does it feel like to be afraid? I mean, like right now, can you remember a time when you were really afraid? Lately or not so lately. Some time when some, something happened financially or there was an accident. Uh, I was almost in an automobile accident myself a, a month or so ago. Nothing happened, but it could have happened. And I remember that moment. What does that feel like in your body? All of those chemicals being dumped into the bloodstream. Is it possible to begin to feel that, to be grounded? And then as Ramdas and Maharaji and Jerry Jampolsky were implying, can we even love what it feels like to be afraid? To me, I think it's very difficult to love fear until you can be present for it in the first place, until you can be grounded and embodied and in your body while you're feeling the fear. To me, what is very useful is that realizing that, that the most difficult thing is also a face of God. That God is just not this beneficent, wonderful, friendly being, but is wrathful and devouring. And that we can, that the beloved can only be everything. The beloved isn't just the good stuff, but the beloved is uh, Jim having a difficult early childhood and you having a client who might be dying and on and on and on. So that having this more loving relationship with our experience can allow us to more easily see its sacred nature. I get these spiritual quotes in the mail every day and there's this one of them uh, about a month ago, I don't remember even who said it, but he said the most powerful spiritual practice is gratitude in advance. So it's not like the end of the day you're having gratitude for what happened during the day. It's you're getting up in the morning and having gratitude for what's going to happen even though you don't know what it is yet. Can we have gratitude for our life even though it hasn't happened yet? Can we have gratitude for our dying even though it's not happening now, that takes practice because there is so much conditioning, as Jim's story points out. We're conditioned to feel anxious. Uh, I said there's this background anxiety. Another way of looking at that could be that there is background grief, that we've all lost a lot. We've lost part of our childhood. We've lost people we care about. We've lost some of our identities. People have left. And this background grief, I mean, sometimes there's a big grief. Somebody you know is dying or has died, and we have to work with the big grief. But there's also this underlying uh, baseline grief that we often don't even notice, that we just is, we assume is part of our human existence. Uh, it might be at the root of this baseline, baseline anxiety that I've been talking about. Can we be with 
that underlying grief, that underlying anxiety, and begin to have compassion for that? Can we be grounded and allow the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral to be unfolding in a very natural way? The worst that can happen is that one could die. But the New York Times did a survey, what are you most afraid of? Number one was speaking in public, and number three was dying. Even though you might not have much intellectual fear of dying, and that fear of dying isn't something you go around thinking about, maybe fear that your child is going to die, or maybe fear that your husband is going to leave, or maybe fear that you're going to go broke and become homeless or something, uh, even though you think, I'm not that afraid of dying. That's the same fear, because fear is based fundamentally on an assumption that there is self and other than self. There's a separation between me and the rest of reality, and that I could be hurt by my relationship with other than self. So, and that, that other than self and self, that's exactly where fear of death is coming from, or what fear of death even generates. I'm sort of a meditation teacher. I, I'm a little bit leery about that term because I think meditation is a little bit tricky. People keep saying, I had a great meditation or I had a bad meditation. And it, it could very well be that the meditation where your mind keeps wandering and you're filling up the space so as not to feel your fear of death is a more fruitful meditation than one that there's spaciousness that just unfolds through serendipity. So that can one be with that anxiety that's generating all the wandering thoughts, all the restlessness, all the activity in our lives? Can we begin to have a compassionate relationship, a grounded, trusting relationship with restlessness, with this attempt to get away from the groundless, boundless nature of existence. And that's where faith comes in. It's kind of back and forth. We're working with faith and we're working with fear. We're seeing, well, here's a place where I don't have faith. Can I deepen my faith? And as we deepen it, we'll, we'll come upon deeper fears. And that's just back and forth where there's this balance between faith and fear, fear and faith. And But at the root of it is the sense of, can we be grounded? Can we trust the mother? Can we trust our experience as it is arising? Can we trust that no matter what is arising, it is God's grace, that, that even suffering is grace, that suffering is perfectly and exactly showing us where the next act of surrender is being required or at least asked for. If you really want to be free, then you start looking for the places where you're having a hard time surrendering. You put yourself in situations where fear might arise so that you, you find circumstances in your life that are going to uncover what might be really difficult to be with. The, the fear that we feel 
right now, today, on Sunday, is something we can work with. Every moment is preparing to die, is preparation for death. Every moment, you and I are looking at, at each other through a computer screen, and to the extent that you and I are pulling back from each other at all and not being totally in love with each other, is in some ways what will be part of our dying. At the same time, one of the first things that happens after you die, in my view, is that you die into the pure light. You, you die into wholeness. So that pretty much today we've been talking a lot about working with fear and having faith as an antidote to fear. There's another spiritual practice, which is not dealing with fear, but learning to bear the light. The Tibetans say that this light that you die into as you die is as bright as a thousand suns. So that right now, you and I are that light. Enlightenment is not finding something new and different. Enlightenment is realizing the nature of things as they are right now. So there's this parallel practice of not just uprooting fear, having faith that we can go beyond fear, but trusting our nature is light. Certainly, from a Buddhist perspective, if you can become clearly aware of what it feels like to be anxious, instead of reporting it post-fact. Before, I was saying that these recent studies have shown that stress doesn't call inf cause inflammation in the body, but unmindful stress, being unmindful of stress, causes inflammation in the body. My guess is that if you're just bouncing from one thing to be anxious about to the next thing, there is some general understanding that you've got anxiety, but there is not a moment-to-moment -moment embodied experience of what it feels like to be anxious. I would suggest that when we're anxious, there are certain things that happen in the body to almost everybody. The first thing is that there's tension in the shoulders, the upper trapezius muscles, you, we raise our shoulders and then we tighten our lower belly. That those are the marks of being identified with a separate I. Okay, so there are, there are three things to do <laughs> somatically to work with ongoing anxiety or letting go of the hold of identification with character structure or the rigid ego, whatever you want to call that. The first thing is releasing your shoulders, not pushing them down, but just releasing them. The second thing is releasing the lower belly down below the navel. But the third thing is finding a balance between tension and relaxation so that as you breathe out, there's some strength in the lower belly. You're centered. You're, you're not getting lost in experience. And you can experiment between having, say, 90% of your attention on your breath and 10% on, on the environment, and then 50% on the breath and 50% on the environment, and then 10% on the, the breath and 90% on the environment. And what does that feel like? And it's hard to be centered if you haven't done some grounding work first. Okay, and if you're grounded and centered, then we can begin to work with anxiety in a more heartfelt, compassionate way. 
one can begin to have compassion for the part of Jim that's caught in anxiety so much. What does it really feel like? Could you do Tong Len? Can you do this taking and sending practice for the part of you that's anxious? How much suffering have you experienced in life because you're caught in anxiety? An enormous amount. It, it's incalculable how many moments you haven't been able to love, to be creative, to be free and relaxed because you've been caught in anxiety. So you picture in front of you anxious Jim, and then there's meditating Jim. And then you start doing compassion practice, loving kindness practice, Tong Len. As you're breathing in, you're even before you're breathing in, you open your heart, and then you begin to feel as directly and nakedly as you can the suffering that you have experienced because of anxiety. Not just imagining it, feeling how much you've, you've suffered. You begin to have compassion for that part of yourself. Compassion deepening to the point that the meditating you is willing to take it in, into, its, into itself. There's meditating you and there's suffering you. Then eventually you, you, you get to see that whatever's arising, it's all the mother, it's all God. Uh, so that you're not experiencing anxiety in the same way. Ramdas has this lovely saying that if you're a son of a bitch and you get enlightened, you'll be an enlightened son of a bitch. So it's not that your, your personality is going to go completely away, but you're just not identified with it anymore. That stuff is still there, but there's, it's, it's like this metaphor of your, your mind is like the sky, the clear blue sky. It's boundless. But because you've had this early childhood conditioning, you put a finite window around the sky that you think, that's my sky, that's me. And a cloud comes into the sky, and this cloud of anxiety, if it's big enough, and the window frame is small enough, all you see is gray. You say, I am anxious. I am afraid. But if you can expand the window frame through these practices, there's still the cloud, but now it's contextualized in a blue sky. And it's moving. So in English, we say, I am afraid. In Spanish, we say, yo tengo miedo. I have fear. In Tibetan, we say, fear is here. So just in the way we think or language our feelings in English, it is so much more difficult not to identify with our emotions. So Arlene was saying that being a surgeon or a mother, create, that, that that responsibility creates anxiety. And I would say that that is not true. <laughs> I would say that your background, your upbringing as a surgeon or as a mother causes you at times to be anxious when you're mothering or uh, performing surgery or driving an automobile or whatever you're doing. And in T Tibetan, there's this slogan, drive all blames into oneself. It's, it's not that the mothering or the surgery that's creating the anxiety. As, as long as we're thinking, I'm anxious because of this outside thing. I'm anxious because my PSA jumped up, or I'm anxious because my kid is having a hard time. There's somebody else 
who could have a PSA jump up and not feel anxious. So it's not really the external event that's causing the reaction. It's something in you. And until we take full responsibility for our responses, responsibility for response, healing isn't going to be happening. We're much more prone to anxiety when we get bad medical news than we get good medical news. But it's not the medical news. It's something in us is being resonated by this external event. So that, as I was saying before, fear is rarely experienced directly. It's projected. I'm afraid because I got this news. Rather than, okay, I'm feeling afraid now. What does it feel like in my body? Can I be grounded and centered when I am just getting this medical news that maybe I have metastatic cancer in my body and that might cause my death? Or I have a child who's not doing well and, and this child might suffer if I don't do something and fix it. I'm saying something that's theoretical and idealistic, but it's also true. As part of being a human, we're going to keep being afraid until we're free. As long as we're identified with the separateness, to the exclusion of the context, the spiritual infinite context, there is going to be fear arising. 